0: Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John,
1: What do you want? That's one of the most powerful questions out there because it forces us to look deep down inside, deep into our hearts, and to name for ourselves and for someone else what it is that we desire, what it is that we want. And this question, "What, what do you want?" it comes at us all the time in a hundred different directions. You you go to a restaurant, and the waiter or waitress asks, "What do you want?" And so you have to name for him or her from from a list of of dozens of options what it is that your heart desires. Or you're in therapy and, and you're trying to understand the source of your anxiety or your depression or your anger, and eventually you get asked the question, okay, well, now that you have this insight into where these emotions are coming from, these feelings are coming from, now that you understand their origin, what do you want? Or you get into it with your, your spouse for the umpteenth time about the same old stuff, and the, finally the other person asks, all right, I've heard enough from you about what I've done wrong, now what is it that you want from me? Or you're negotiating for a new job, a promotion, and, and, and your boss asks you, well, what do you want in order to, to take this position? And so naming these desires is Hard. Because every time that that we, we name them, it reveals something about us, about what we value, about how we value ourselves, about what we prioritize, about what we love. But naming these desires is powerful too because it's only when we name them, when we name what we really want, what we really desire, that things can actually begin to change. When I was in seminary, I was introduced to this this concept called nonviolent communication, and and it comes from the world at least in the context I discovered it uh, from pastoral counseling, and, and maybe other people know about it. Maybe maybe you've heard of it before, but that's when I was introduced to this concept, and and I think it's called nonviolent communication because it's it's uh, you know it's a counter countering itself. It's setting itself up against how communication can sometimes work. You know, so called communication um, where people are either kind of angry. Or or over, trying to overpower the other person, manipulate the other person. And, and, and so nonviolent communication is saying, we, you know, we, we, we want to be speaking to each other in ways that don't trigger that fight or flight response. That's so natural when we're doing communication, which also uh, overlaps a lot of times with confrontation and conflict. How do we do that in such a way that we are heard and the other person understands? And so it's this method, nonviolent communication. So it starts with an observation what are you seeing? Then it goes to a feeling. How is what you're observing making you feel? And then finally, it all culminates in an in a, in a expression of a, of a need, a request, a desire, what you want. So here's just a trivial example. You know, uh, someone could say to, someone may have heard this before, you know, when you don't put away your clothes that I folded um, in the laundry basket for over a week, there's an observation, situation that happened. It makes me feel devalued. Feeling. And so I need you to put them away in a timely fashion. There's a need, there's a request, a desire. And so that's the alternative to saying something like, which a nonviolent communication form of this would be like, you're so lazy. Or or giving someone the silent treatment until they say, what's wrong? Enough times that you finally lash out. And and so it also helps to, to move beyond just naming the problem to actually naming a solution. And so saying what you want, naming what you want, it's, it's vulnerable, it's revelatory, it's powerful. And in our passage this morning, two times, Jesus asked people, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus, as we've seen, gets two very different answers to that question. And so we're going to look at this morning about wanting the wrong things, wanting the right things, and what Jesus wants. So wanting the wrong things, wanting the right things, what Jesus wants. And so uh, just to set the scene here, Jesus is on the road uh, going up to Jerusalem for Passover. And he's leading the way on what he knows. I mean, he's predicted it twice before. Here he says it again at the beginning of our passage. He knows this is going to be his final showdown, his final confrontation with the powers of evil, the powers that have arrayed themselves against God's kingdom. That are personified by the Jerusalem elites, the Gentile authorities, but really they're just the human representatives of these dark forces that oppose God and his kingdom. And so at the beginning of our text, Jesus, for the third and final time, explains to his disciples the fate that awaits him. What's going to happen when he finally makes it to Jerusalem? And he does it in such detail that it reads like, it's almost like a a, a précis, or it's almost like he's providing a table of contents for the end of the gospel of Mark, what's gonna happen from, you know, Good Friday through Easter Sunday. And the remarkable thing about Jesus is he knows this is going to happen. He knows he's going to die a horrible death, a humiliating death, and yet he still walks ahead of them. He's still at the front going up to Jerusalem. Jesus isn't like a prisoner, you know, being led to to the gallows for his execution and and so walking behind. He's not panicking. Uh, Like people, you know, at Costco nabbing all the toilet paper or bottled water or hand sanitizer they can get their hands on. He is leading the charge like a, a general marching into battle. And what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem, it isn't some tragedy, but the very reason that he came, the whole point of his earthly ministry is going to be brought to a head. He's going to fulfill his purpose when he is delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they condemn him to death, when they deliver him over to the Gentiles and then they mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Jesus understands that in order for him to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, he has to undergo all that. That the only way that, 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 that we're going to get the glorious light of Easter is to pass through the hellacious darkness of Good Friday. So it's in this context, having just taught about his impending betrayal, arrest, death, and torture, And doing so for the third time that James and John approach Jesus with a request. And that request starts with these words. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that is a heck of a way to preface a request to anybody. Let alone Jesus. And there's a a technical theological term for what this is. Chutzpah. (laughs) They got chutzpah. And so, you know, what kind of people would go up to Jesus, would go up to anyone, but, but especially Jesus and say, hey, before I ask you for something, I want you to promise me that you're going to give it to me, okay? It's like when, you know, you go to someone and you say, hey, I'm going to tell you something and you have to promise me that you're not going to get mad at what I, what I tell you. It, it, is, it is manipulative, straight up, to do something like that. And actually, in this request, they're saying, hey, I'm going to ask you for something, you need to give me whatever it is I ask. There's echoes here of something that happens earlier in Mark. It's a text we didn't read, but it's one that we know well. Someone else offered something like this to someone else. King Herod, when Herodias' daughter danced for him, and he was so pleased by this dance, he says, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom." So do James and John really think that Jesus is just another Herod, another tin pot despot willing to grant wishes in order to curry favor? And so not only is their request beneath the character of a disciple, it's denigrating when we see that, it's denigrating to Jesus. It's denigrating to the kind of king, the kind of leader that he is. What kind of person do they think he is? What kind of Messiah do they think he is that he would grant such a request Now, what does Jesus say in response? Get behind me, Satan. No. Save that one for Peter. No, he asks them that wonderfully revealing question. Well, what do you want me to do for you? And this is is where we learn what it means to want the wrong things. Because what James and John ask for is to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in his glory. And so essentially what they're saying is that, Jesus, when your kingdom comes, we want to be right there, right next to you in the places of greatest honor. You know, it's like saying, well, hey, you know, when the uh, wedding reception comes, I want to be seated at the head table. And it's like asking for that before you've even been invited to the wedding. They do not know what they're asking for because they haven't, actually been listening to Jesus, or if they have been listening, they haven't been understanding what he's been saying, and they've been taking what Jesus says and filtering it, filtering it through their existing paradigm. Because Jesus has been saying time and again, I mean, this is like in, 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 in just two, three chapters of Mark, he's predicted three times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going there to die, and that mysteriously is how God's kingdom is going to come, and they still think, they still think, after hearing this three times, and in this last time in great detail, excruciating detail, they still think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to conquer and overthrow in a conventional sense, in a conventional understanding of those words. You know, we know the end of this story, and so we can see, you know, we're like the, the omniscient narrator. We can see what's happening in here, and this request to sit at Jesus' right and left hand, and Jesus says, it's not my place to appoint who gets to do that. You know, who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand in his glory? Not these two would-be princelings, but two thieves. That's who's at Jesus' left and right hand on the cross. And so James, did James and John really want to sit there? Do they really want that? And so here's what I see as, as at the heart of wanting the wrong things from Jesus. When we want, want the wrong things from Jesus, we want what he can do for us rather than what we can do for him. When we want the wrong things, we want to use Jesus. We want to use our faith rather than serve Jesus. And serve others. And when we want the wrong things, Jesus, he's a means to an end rather than an end itself. Using Jesus, instrumentalizing Jesus in our Christian faith is always the great danger. And we see it with his closest followers here, James and John. They were in the the inner circle. And so it's a great danger in, in, in the church to use Jesus Especially in pastoral leadership and church leadership. I mean, you know, how many pastors out there that the great temptation is is we want to build a platform for ourselves. We want to develop our own personal brand. We want people to listen to us, to invite us to speak, buy our books, listen to our podcasts, retweet our pithy aphorisms. Follow us on Instagram because we want to be somebodies. And you know what? If you don't have a lot of talent to make it in the secular world. Well, Jesus, he can help you do that. I love these words from uh, the mid-20th century poet, Robert Raines. He says, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake. But really, for my own Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. We know that we want the wrong things when, at the heart, our desires are about using God and other people. So with James and John, we see what it means to want the wrong things, but our passage doesn't leave us there in despair, no. We actually finally get a positive example of wanting the right things that comes from the most unexpected of places and unexpected of people, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Now, what did Bartimaeus want? Even before Jesus asked him this question, he caught word that this man he had heard so much about, whose reputation preceded him, was passing by. This was his one shot. And so even though he couldn't see Jesus, he cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. Just as an aside, you know that song, blind man sit by the road and he cried. Yeah, he never says, show me the way to go home. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. I just don't understand that song, okay. Anyways, um, So he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. And so even though more than a miracle, what he's crying out is for mercy, kindness. Love is patient, love is kind, it's merciful. Bartimaeus, he doesn't want status. He's not worried about status at all. He wants salvation, deliverance. He wants to be lifted up out of his current predicament. He wants to truly encounter Jesus more than he wants anything else. That's obvious from this entire encounter. He wants it more than he wants to keep his dignity. He cries out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and, and the crowd say, shut up. And we can only guess why, but clearly what he's doing, he's making a scene. He's becoming a distraction. He, he's interrupting a very important person on a very important errand. You know, the crowd thinks he's going on in a victory march. He doesn't need to be interrupted by this guy, you know, this, 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 this person just crying out. And so they tell him to shut up. They said, be Be quiet. So what is Bartimaeus' response to their, you know, shushing? I love this. He cried out all the more. I like to think that he got even louder than he had been before. He he wanted Jesus, he wanted to encounter Jesus more than he wanted the approval of the crowd. And when he caught word that Jesus had called him, it says, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now there's a lot going on there with throwing off his cloak this was a huge deal because this cloak provided him with two things, identity and security. This cloak was the outer, outer garment that he would wrap around himself with at night. But it was also the clothing that, that showed his official status as an accepted beggar. He was the type of person who could beg. That was okay. And if, if you're in Jericho, that's a wealthy city. He's on a pilgrim route. And so as, as a good Jew, one of your expectations as a pilgrim was to provide alms for the poor. And so though we wouldn't want to trade places with him or be in his situation, at least he had that. He had an identity. He was an officially sanctioned beggar. He was legitimate. As a blind person, that was his prerogative. He was allowed to support himself by by, by sitting by the busy road of a prosperous city and receiving charity. You know, it's still true today, but, but it was especially true in the ancient world that that, you know, you kind of were what you wore. Your clothing was a signal. It was part and parcel of who you were in the social order. It was a kind of uniform. And we still do that today, right? I'm wearing a coat and a jacket and a tie. It says something about who I want to present myself as in the world, my identity. And people who wear uniforms every single day, it does that. But even if you don't have an official uniform, you have an unofficial uniform. And so when Jesus called Bartimaeus, he cast aside his cloak, he cast aside his old identity. And at the same time, when he did that, he cast aside his security as well. Because that same cloak that he wrapped himself with at night would have been the cloak that he spread before himself as he begged for alms for charity. And it was where those giving alms would have placed their coins, right? It's the equivalent to a a busker, you know, on a street corner playing music, their, their open instrument case. And so spreading that cloak out in front of himself, that's how he was able to make a living. That's how he was able to keep a roof over his head and food in his belly. Yet at the call of Jesus, he cast it aside. He was willing to throw off his his old identity and his old source of security just to to encounter Jesus because he wanted Jesus more than anything else. And he wanted Jesus just, just for who he was. Not necessarily, he had no guarantee for what he could do for him. And in leaving behind his old identity and his only source of worldly wealth and security, blind Bartimaeus did what the rich young ruler earlier in Mark chapter 10 could not that Bradley preached about last week. know, Jesus had told the rich young man, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad. But at the mere mention of Jesus' summons blind, Bartimaeus is ready to leave it all behind because what he wants is so simple and so profound. He wants to encounter Jesus because he knows that otherwise he is just going to remain stuck in his present condition and way of life. And he desperately wants a way out. And so he rushes to Jesus and Jesus asks that question again. What do you want me to do for you? Now, this might seem like an obvious question, but but Jesus asked it anyway because it's a powerful question. It's a revealing question. It's a question that cuts through everything and gets at what we really desire, what we really think it is that we need. And in Jesus asking that question, it also gives Bartimaeus dignity and it gives him agency. Jesus isn't just a, a dispenser of charity. He is an endower of dignity. Gives the Bartimaeus the dignity to speak for himself. Right? He doesn't tell him to shut up like the crowd. He says, "Tell me what you want." Jesus isn't presuming. He's not patronizing. And the way that Bartimaeus answers this question, it's the, it's the polar opposite of how James and John did. Whereas they asked for status, he simply asked for sight. And the way he asked for it is powerful. He says, "Rabbi, let me recover my sight." But in the Greek manuscripts, he actually says "Rabuni," which is this exalted title. It's actually when, when the rabbis, they, 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 they reserved this phrase for referring to God himself. So it's this very exalted title, suggestive. And all that Bartimaeus wanted, he, he, he wanted to recover something he had lost. And all he wanted to do was see. And so he only asked for what he truly needed in that moment. And in that moment, Jesus gave it to him. And he who had been blind could now see, and the first thing that he sees is Jesus' face. Now, how marvelous is that? And Jesus says, "Go, Go away. Your faith has made you well. Or he actually says, Go your way. Not go away, but go your way. Your faith has made you well. And literally, it's your faith has saved you. Go your way. So then that's almost another implicit what-do-you-want question. What is your way? What is the way that you are going to go? And what is the way that Bartimaeus chooses? And it says, immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. So that is a picture, a perfect picture of discipleship. Moving from beside the road with Jesus passing by, to on the road following Jesus. The, so the right thing to want is whatever it is that will free us from what is holding us back and keeps us from following Jesus. Want what will allow us to follow Jesus. So here we have an example of a true disciple, someone who stops at nothing to encounter Jesus, who asks for what he really needs and commits himself to following the way. And so let Bartimaeus stand as an example for all of us. And let us reflect on, on, on that most straightforward and difficult of questions. What do we want? What do we want Jesus to do for us? What do we want from him really? Do do we want what James and, and John want? Jesus sort of give us the better life that we've always wanted, kind of from a worldly perspective, or do we want what Bartimaeus wants? Which is another way of asking do we want what Jesus wants? Which leads me briefly to the last thing that I want to talk about this morning. What does Jesus want? We see the answer in verses 42 through 45, which is Jesus' response to James and John's audacious request. You know, our culture, we we, we are obsessed with leadership, and it was no different 2,000 years ago. Leadership, especially in the church, it's so important. It's so important that Jesus uh, talked about it frequently. And when Jesus talks about leadership, he's like a broken record. He says the same things over and over again. once we begin to hear it, we can can finish Jesus' sentences. You want to be first? Well, then you better be last. You want to be great? Well, then you better become a servant. And Jesus is always teaching about this because his followers then and now keep forgetting the lesson. And what Jesus says in, in verses 42 through 45 is that what he wants from his followers who would purport to be leaders is service and sacrifice. Here's Jesus' summary of what it looks like to be a leader in the kingdom. It comes right in verse 45, which is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, especially in the Gospel of Mark. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying that he came to serve and sacrifice in order to free people, to free people from sin. To free people from illness, to free people from addiction, to free people from self-loathing and self-centeredness, to free people from hopelessness and heart sickness, to free people from fear and the greatest enemy of all, death. And the way to overcome all those things is to trust in and follow in the footsteps of the one who served and sacrificed. Because service and sacrifice are always at the center of what true transformational love looks like. Transformational love always looks like service and sacrifice. We all know this is true. Think about becoming a parent. You become a servant right away. You serve that child. When they are born, they are completely helpless. You meet their every need. You cater to their every desire. You answer their every cry. Why? Because you love them and you know that only by serving them, are they going to grow and develop as they should? So, being a parent, transformational love, and being a parent involves service and it involves sacrifice as well. And what is sacrifice? Sacrifice is about giving up something of value for something of even greater value. But it's about giving something up for something of value that doesn't immediately or tangibly and directly benefit you. And so, when you're a parent, you, you, you sacrifice lots, you sacrifice your own freedom. You don't just get to do what you want to do anymore you don't get to go out every night you don't get to read the kind of books that you want you get to read little blue truck over and over and over again i mean it's a great piece of literature don't get me wrong you sacrifice money to buy clothes and toys you sacrifice order and cleanliness in your house You give up so much. I mean, it's true, you give up so much to be a parent, but it is for something far greater than what you had on your own. And so Jesus wants service and sacrifice because true transformational love always expresses itself that way. And so what Jesus is offering here, it's not just an atonement theory and understanding how the cross works and, and what ransom means in that context is very, very important But it's equally as important to see how it shows us how Jesus wants us to live and to love. And this best part about teaching about greatness, true greatness that we get from Jesus, is that it's available to everyone. You know, think about it. The the way that the world usually works is that in order to be great, you've got to be elite in some way. And so you've got to be really smart, or really strong, or athletic, or beautiful, or rich, or popular. That's how the world defines greatness and measures greatness. And so by definition, that is only available to uh, the few, to the people at the right hand of the distribution of these attributes. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God, because greatness there is measured by service and by sacrifice. And anyone can be a servant. And anyone can sacrifice. And I close with these wonderful words uh, from uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart of grace. A soul generated by love. That'll preach.
0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.